0: Chip designs has rapidly increased, and okay. uh, you know that also means for us there's more work to be done uh, to to make sure that these chips are are secure and uh, more manufacturing cap- capabilities and more R and D finding is just going to help this entire ecosystem.
1: On this episode, the Insiders are joined by Andreas Kuhlmann, Executive Chairman and CEO of Sycuity, formerly known as Tortuga Logic, to discuss the importance of security at the chip level amidst the release of new standards and recent government involvement in the semiconductor industry via the much-talked-about CHIPS Act. Then, assistant editor Taryn Ingmar dives under the sea to explore how a small UK-based company is standing against global warming by creating artificial coral reef structures as a means to halt coastal erosion around the globe. But first, Brandon and Rich tackle the not-so-age-old debate between the sweet simplicity of 8-bit MCUs and the bigger, badder, maybe better, 16 and 32-bit MCUs. But a gear shift into automotive repair struggles will highlight the difficulty some shops face when presented with dealer-specific vehicle fixes.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to the Embedded Insiders podcast featuring Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computer Design. Hello. Hello, that's your big intro. (laughs) And I'm Rich Nass, Executive Vice President of Open Systems Media and Leader of the Embedded Computer Embedded computing design franchise. How you doing today, Brandon? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. I got a topic for you. I know we talked not too long ago about uh, 8-bit not being dead. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Are you are you young enough to go that far back in your memory bank.
3: Uh, <laughs> yes, I. I got it with okay. my 16. With my 16-bit memory.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I was at TI not too long ago, and they were talking about a 79-cent uh microcontroller it's pretty much a full-blown microcontroller with a bluetooth transceiver built into it whoa so i know we've had this discussion before but why am i using an 8-bit microcontroller when i can go 16 bits with a a free rtos um for 79 cents
3: oh sorry so the so the ti part is a 16-bit no
2: it's a 32-bit
3: it's a 32-bit for 79
2: cents yep
3: uh, I mean, you'd have to ask Microchip about that, but uh, you know, it's all about it's all about the numbers. Uh, well, I'm playing
2: devil's advocate here, so you're on the uh, the Microchip side.
3: Well, I mean, it is all about the numbers, right? I mean, I have never ever heard of a wirelessly connected 32-bit micro selling under a dollar. Even I don't think. Yes, you did. I just told you. Well, but before this. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> um.
3: um but maybe you weren't listening. <laughs> maybe I wasn't. But um, but I've never, I've that this is the first time I've heard about it. And it's a little surprising that given all the things that are going on in the industry that you can do that. Maybe a pretty savvy marketing move there by TI. But um, I think it all really comes down to cost. You know, Microchip keeps adding, and anybody really now who's who's uh, dabbling in the 8 space, they keep finding little tricks and ways that you can get more out of you know that base 8-bit um, uh, you know technology but I mean what do you if it's not cost then what is it it's, it's probably not power consumption it's probably not for it's it's nothing but the cost right that's the only thing
2: well I got two for you and now I'm gonna flip and play my pro microchip side one it's simple yeah uh, and and any high school kid can program an 8-bit microcontroller but i think the more important one is um you're ready in the design and i'm i'm not pulling out this thing to to put in a new microcontroller that has to and yet throw away all your software so if it's a brand new design i can't really see the argument but if it's a retrofit something existing design and upgrade you're probably going to stick with what you got
3: yeah but this goes back to our conversations with John Costello, remember? The state of the art versus the state of the practice, which is sooner or later, it may be a long later, you know, maybe 20 years from now, but sooner or later, that design is gonna come up for refresh, right? No matter what it is. And at that point, there is gonna be somebody on the team who's advocating to move to a 32-bit or maybe, you know, just screw it. We're just gonna go to some huge multi-core processor right now and replace a bunch of different micros uh, with one big apps processor um, so that is one of the you know one of the things to consider when you're making decisions like this obviously if you're already if you're dealing with an existing design some in a lot of cases as you put out the decisions kind of made for you um but i do think it's it's interesting referring back to well should we be you know should we have more
2: fab capacity for Eight bits? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I, I also have another one for you, um, and this one comes from personal experience. Um, we talk a lot now about the amount of electronics that are in modern automobiles. Mm-hmm. You know that the amount of content just keeps going up. There's a microcontroller in every panel on on the car. What happens when you get an accident and you have to replace these things? Joe auto body mechanic yeah, right. know yeah. how to put a new microcontroller in, in my new headlight or my, <laughs> you know, my fender or something like that. And and this literally did happen to me um, where there were sensors in there that the auto body guy, he didn't know they were there and he had he was completely clueless how to reprogram anything. So it, it had to go back to the dealer yep. um, to get I- fixed.
3: I think you already know the answer when you, you know, when you've heard about Tesla's and all the problems that they have with, with their service department, because it takes three years for, you know, somebody to, to get their car service there because of that precise issue. You know, your Joe, your Joe auto body, who's, you know, the guy who's had a garage down the street for the last 30 years that you've been taken in for oil changes is not going to be able in the wildly vast majority of cases to service these vehicles. So you're going to end up with a really dealer centric um, service ecosystem increasingly moving forward, which, you know, unless unless Joe Autobody can get something from a supplier that's, you know, already completely contained system that's just sort of plug and play. Yeah, you're you're we're going to be stuck with the dealer.
2: Well, where this was an issue in my case, um, the dealer doesn't do body work. And the body guy doesn't do the electronics. Mm. So they, you know, and it it was kind of weird that they hadn't encountered this problem before, but they're both scratching their heads trying to figure out who was going to fix the car and how.
3: So what ended up happening?
2: Um, The the body guy put the parts on and just left them there. And when he drove the car himself over to the dealership, which was pretty far, um, it was... 45 minutes an hour ride, all the things were beeping the whole way there, you know, be, because nothing was set.
3: Well, this um, there's either two directions that you, we can go with this. The first direction is, well, isn't this a, a good use case for having, you know, city owned fleets of autonomous vehicles where, you know, we don't own our own and we just have it, some service shop that just handles all that stuff. Or the second one is, Maybe NLOS as a subsidiary um, auto auto body repair division that handles all of these use cases in the middle.
2: I thought you were suggesting we have a division of NLOS that does auto body work.
3: Yeah, that's what I meant.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, that, that I think you're.
3: It's it's funny that they hadn't run into that problem before, but I it's it's inevitable at this point, right? That we're going to start seeing. Corner cases like that would not be corner cases. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It
2: it, it's a very weird phenomenon. You know, it, nobody really thought of this one. I don't think.
3: You know, what happens when there's a bug in the firmware? If, you know, if the dealer or the automaker hasn't updated it via OTA yet, right? What do you do? Is it's sort of like your house, right? Is Does your car become bricked?
2: No, because the... Previous version is tested back. enough that it's not going to lock you up.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that's true. Okay, well, here we are. Yep. Driverless. Just
2: keep plowing forward with more semiconductor content in those cars.
3: <laughs> <laughs> more tech keeping us from doing everyday things. Exactly.
1: Now, Andreas Kuhlmann, executive chair and CEO of Security, formerly Tortuga Logic joins Brandon to talk about why the relatively new practice of implementing security at the hardware level is so important.
0: Yeah, so to Tuga Logic, we we're we are solely focused on uh, semiconductor security and helping semiconductor companies to verify uh, uh, chips that, uh, that that are secure in a sense that they cannot be attacked from cyber attacks or attacked you know by any other malicious players. So that is something that's fairly recently coming up you you may have remember spectrum melton when it hit you know all the all the big processor companies in 2018 since then uh, people realized you can actually hack chips so and we help customers to prevent that. Um, so as
3: far as your offerings go, are you just doing the verification of the chips? Do you offer any IP? Um, what's the what do you sell?
0: And a very good question, Brandon. So, we are what we call in pre silicon uh, security verification, but it's really not just verification technology. We start from you know helping customers to compile uh, security requirements that are actually verifiable, understanding. The security requirements for a particular chip. Then how you can compile this into a verification program. Then actually doing the verification. And at the end, what we call security sign-off, meaning checking all the boxes. You know, have you actually verified all the requirements? And are you ready to to tape out and manufacture the chip? That's great. So,
3: kind of pivoting now into the Chips Act. Obviously, there's. A, it looks like you know some version of this of this legislation is going to get through. And Right now, I think there's a 50, just over $50 billion earmarked for investment in uh, fab capacity, expansion, R&D. You know, some of it's going to the Department of Defense. Um, I would assume that from where Tortuga sits, you would be interested in there being a lot of investment in new, um, you know, new manufacturing facilities that are able to produce new
0: chips so that you can verify um, you know, new designs. is that would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely, right. I think if I look at this from a, from an ecosystem play, you know we have seen over the last years that the number of uh, chip designs has rapidly increased. and okay. uh, you know that also means for us there's more work to be done uh, to to make sure that these chips are. Are secure and uh, more manufacturing cap- capabilities and more R and D uh, funding. is just going to help this entire ecosystem. So I'm I'm super excited about that. Uh, particularly also the aspect that um, manufacturing is uh, is encouraged to move back to the United States. I personally, Brandon, I was always surprised over the last thirty years seeing manufacturing slowly going going away from the United States, and I've always thought that is that is such a critical strategic. Capability. So so I think it's time to really um, you know, I don't think it was completely reverted, but 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 kind of complimentary drive back this a little bit.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, from a
0: nationalistic
3: standpoint, it makes complete sense. One of the things that's interesting though, here, and we were just talking before we started recording a little bit about, you know, lobbyists and the you know, the person with the deepest pocket wins. And what's sort of concerning, and this is probably something that you can certainly speak to. Is so say that you know pick any one of your big you know top ten chip manufacturers, right? If they get earmarked, let's say forty percent of the chips act money. Well, I would think that for the ecosystem at large and and for companies like Tortuga, it would probably be better for there to be an independent, you know like a, the, an American TSMC, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can have all of these fabulous semiconductor companies needing their chips, you know verified or their designs verified. And that sort of makes it a a nicely, more evenly distributed uh, market. Would that
0: be fair to say? I'm not sure if I fully agree, right? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, all the money should be spent, you know, on one, two or three companies. But one thing that uh, chip manufacturing needs is is, is really scale and, Mm. and scale comes really from, you know, pretty focused investment. Uh, you know, today if you want to build a fab, I mean, a new fab, you know, course you, you saw the Intel announcement of twenty million dollars, right? Or you see, you know, a modern fab costs many billion dollars, right? And that is something you cannot do half baked, right? The second thing is uh, modern fabs. I mean, the 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 time till you break even is many years. You know, it's anywhere between five to ten years. So scale is absolutely important. For that, and I think one of the reasons why semiconductor manufacturing has really moved more offshore was because, um, particularly, you know, in Taiwan and China, other countries, right? Um, semiconductor manufacturing was highly subsidized to compensate for some of this risk from a business point of view. So I see this really more. From a from an ecosystem, encouraging that versus you know big versus small, and, and so so that's how I see. And and as to logic, I think we will we will benefit uh, uh, with everybody on that because the number of chips, as I mentioned earlier, number of chip designs going up, and you know there's just more work for us to be done. But the chips
3: act in general, I mean, you know, whether the chips are being manufactured domestically or or in, in Southeast Asia it doesn't really matter to Tortuga one way or the other, does
0: it? No, not directly, right? Not directly, but I think what, what I would expect is having more uh, capabilities here will essentially increase um, the diversity of, of, of chips that are designed. And um, that can be manufactured without, you know, any supply chain issues. So, so I think it, it will lead to a more um, resilient ecosystem, and that's also good us. Very good. Um, so
3: tell me a little bit about what you're working on over at Tortuga. You know, what's the latest and greatest, and what can we expect in the uh, on the security and verification front?
0: Yeah, Brandon. Good question. I mean security and I've learned this before Tortuga, I worked in application security uh, I built a application security business that's really focused on on software security a security is really not about let's buy a tool you know let's run a tool and finds everything bad and you fix everything bad and you're done right security is really uh, about a program and security is always about the journey and the first thing that you, have to realize in security, you have to align all the business stakeholders on what is important for the product, particularly you know in our case for semiconductor, what are the, the security requirements um, that we want to uh, implement, that we want to verify, that we want to communicate to our customers that may actually our customers ask for. It. So security in the first place, is um, involves many, many stakeholders. So we help the discussion among these stakeholders on coming up with security requirements um, that are really reflecting uh, what the the business needs are for the company. And then as I mentioned earlier, we're helping them uh, compiling this into into security verification program. And what we have is some very unique technology that came out of uh, UC San Diego and UC Santa Barbara that is, um, you know, it's called information flow. So think about the following. If you have some secrets on a chip, right, and you want to know where all the secrets go over the operation of the chip, that's exactly what we know. So, so we know where all the secret assets go, and we, we can make sure that they don't go where they shouldn't go. For example, you have an encryption key that encrypts all your data communication, you know, within a chip or to other chips this encryption key you definitely do not want to let get off the chip because then anyone else can decrypt, you know, the message that you're encrypting. So and we can help um, the the design organizations to verify that indeed that key um, cannot cannot leak. But we also do things like Spectrum Meltdown, which has been now very large uh, in the news. These are are called the uh, timing side channel. So these are more complicated attacks. But that's kind of what you do. Very excited about the technology that we're building. Every day there's there's new stuff coming out of our R&D lab and there's some, we have some thoughts about some new products later this year. Pretty good. So
3: one of the things that we see at Embedded Computing Design is, you know, we, we cover the, the full stack, you know, everywhere from, you know, EDA tools down to the IP level on up through, you know, IoT devices connecting to the cloud and what happens to their data. When you get to the application layer, there are a lot of issues around security, mostly related to um, either a lack of knowledge and understanding of you know the security fundamentals um, or number two, you know it's just timely and costly to, to do to implement it. And so we see a lot of engineers really following you know sort of leaning hard on the inherent native security of the chip. And honestly, there's kind of an expectation that it's like, oh, well, you know, the network is going to take care of it and the, and the hardware is going to take care of it. So I don't have to take care of it. Um, do you see, number one, um, any sort of skirting of investment um, in, at the semiconductor level? You know, or, or is there or they take that much more seriously than maybe, you know, up at the application level? Um, and then, you know, where are some of the where what are some of the reasons that you would say, hey, you know, you got to do this or that, you know, we were not going to cover the whole thing.
0: Right, right, right. Hey, Brett, I could not have said better what you said in the beginning. Because, you know, as I said, I worked in applications, software security for a long time. And when I switched over to a semiconductor security, all my buddies would tell me, What? I thought the chips are secure. Right. right. Till I, til I told them some stories, right, about how the chips are getting hacked. And everybody was like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. Right. And you take some of these hacks. I mean, you can do whatever you want in software. Um, if your if your hardware is vulnerable, um, you know you can extract whatever you want to extract, and you get to the secrets that you want to protect. Right. It, overall, if you think about this from a system perspective, right, the system is is as secure or as insecure as the weakest part. And uh, with now having vulnerabilities in hardware, it's just yet another component where you have more attack vectors, right? And uh, as we have learned in the software world, where is exactly what you said. I mean, developers, Ten years ago, made very fundamental mistakes, right? Simple things like buffer overflows, but, but you know, things like you know, you don't clean out your your input strings, and you get you know command injection and these kind of things. Really simple stuff. Developers in the software world have learned, are still learning, or improving, you know, the skills how to develop software with security in mind. We have exactly the same journey on the on the hardware side that that chip designers. And chip architects uh, have to build the chip with security in mind. And I think you, you asked the question of you know, how much progress are we making? Just in the last one and a half, two years, um, the amount of attention um, that I've seen and the amount of um, uh, companies, semiconductor companies that I'm talking to, that are saying that is extremely important, has ex- very, very rapidly grown. So that is clearly something that um, I think is on the top of the list of of all the semiconductor uh, companies. And if you take a particular sector, automotive, we can maybe talk a little bit more about this. I mean, they came out with new standards, right? That's a new ISO um, SAE standard that actually uh, uh, standardizes the way you should ensure that semiconductors um, are designed uh, securely. That's an interesting
3: question. And it actually sort of dovetails back into what we were talking about with the CHIPS Act. Um, you know, you, you're sort of seeing that once you get federal money involved, um, there are a couple of different things in play here. Number one, we've got to increase um, the ability to create the semiconductors that are needed to function as a society anymore, right? Um, but number two, we're also approaching this world where we have to have standards. Um, some are being mandated on the security front. And, and, you know, that's not even to speak about the, the safety standards that are industry specific. So what do you see on that level, you know, both of us, both as the, the industry working together as an ecosystem and a community towards, you know, some baseline level of requirement. Um, and then number two, I guess larger as, as the government getting involved in certain regulations around the quality of semiconductors and security, especially for connected devices.
0: Uh, Brandon, very good, right? I, I think just a, a, a few comments on that. Number one is, um, you know, you may have heard about the CWE, the Common Weakness uh, Enumeration, right? These are yeah. this is a standard that's uh, that's that's subsidized by the by the U.S. government. is a community effort um, coordinated by MITRE. CWEs were extremely successful in the software world over the last fifteen years, where they became kind of you know, the nomenclature, how to talk about, you know, what kind of securities have you looked at, you know, vendors are are, are evaluated, you know, the tools, can you cover this, can you cover this? CWEs two years ago in 2020 were extended to the hardware world and I see exactly the same thing here. They're very, very practical tool for the chip development organization to essentially this is a list of things you know that i should uh, cover this is the list i should dive deeper and this is a list when i when I deli- you know deliver a chip that i can actually tell my customers you know we have done something about it that's number one number two um i mentioned automotive earlier automotive has actually uh You probably remember the Jeep Cherokee hack, right? And it was in 2015 or so. It was a huge wake up call for the automotive industry because for them, security is not a primary concern, but safety is a huge concern, right? So they made some very rapid progress on software security over the last um, years. And um, I see this now with the new ISO 21434 standard is extending into. Into hardware, where they essentially, uh, you know, have standards. This is how you should develop a hardware, uh, you know, from everything from from planning to you know uh, to to requirements to development, verification, operation, and so on. Um, I think that will. I, I I hear this from our customers. Very, very important for them to adhere to these standards and even look for certification for these standards. That's the second aspect. And the third aspect, I think, from a government point of view, um, absolutely right. I mean, you see, of course, in a the DoD, there's uh, there, there's a lot of work going on to to standardize some of the requirements and essentially just request and 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 essentially, you know, enforce you know some of these standards, right? Um, I also saw something, and, and, and I hope this gets extended to, to the software world, but you may remember there was a presidential executive order coming out, I think, in, in March or May 21, that all government entities, when they purchase software, they should should look at the software bill of material. And the software bill of material is essentially, okay, give me the list of all the software components that are in your application, and, um, you know, are there any known vulnerabilities in there? i think these kind of things are very good lessons that can be extended into the hardware world into the into the semiconductors and so on it's more and more of the semiconductor
3: becoming like software and vice versa it's funny I was, right
0: i mean we just uh, forgot
3: about it <laughs> yeah i was just um i just did some coverage on arm total solutions which you know i mean now you know this hardware co- software co-design thing is is almost to the point where traditional chip and embedded engineering isn't the way it used to be anymore. It's more like software engineering because now you've got virtual models and you're just programming on top of these You know, before there's any silicon even anywhere near tape out. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly, yeah. I mean, so you, I'm sure you know the quote from Andres and Horowitz. It has always been quoted, you know, software's eating the world, right? Right. I think we all forgot that the software actually runs on something right? hardware. Right. <laughs>
3: Well, and like we said, when um, you know when somebody's somebody's system gets hacked, then they're going to say, "Oh, well, it must have been that hardware stuff, right?" right, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, sort of in the short strokes here, Andreas. Um, one of the things that I want to go back to and, and tie together is, you know, there's always a really thin line in the way that our economy works between, you know being you know in the private sector mm-hmm. being able to innovate and move at the speed with, with which you want and the market demands and then on the other hand number one regulation and, and standards like we touched on those will always be around in some form of fast fashion and safety and security critical industries but now we're talking about taking money from the government right
0: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
3: when you take money from from anybody right they expect to have a little bit of say so mm-hmm. how do you think that that's going to impact innovation? Um, speed, time to market, all of those things that, you know, people like to have control. over.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would look at this from a different angle. I mean, we at Totuga, we work actually fairly closely with, uh, with the DoD and, 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 and some of the defense entities. And one thing that I find is very positive over the last year is that uh, the DoD wants to really leverage uh, more the private sector, the commercial um, industry for building capabilities I think that's a very positive development because number one, I think it's uh, it saves a lot of cost instead of you know duplicate efforts, duplicate research, duplicate uh, development. And I think it gets us faster to to scale and have the really the latest technology in in, 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 in our defense sector, right in terms of, Getting you know large companies work, right? um, it's it, you know it's it's a complicated topic because um, the most important thing is that you invest in areas that are you know that really have a high impact and that really uh, you know uh, people are accountable for. Okay, you know you promised X Y Z. Have you delivered X Y Z? And has it really taken us to the level where we wanted to go? Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's uh, it, it's very important that certain critical areas, where the the private sector, you know, it, 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 for whatever reason doesn't invest or the investment is of. Of lower ROI, I think that this gets subsidized. I think is very important for the United States. I want to really close it off. What I've seen over the last thirty years, where you know semiconductor, uh, you know, investments, manufacturing, all of this went all overseas, and I was always scratching my head. I'm really glad um, that you know this is taken seriously. That people, you know, it's not just saying software is eating the world. Um, hardware is a, is a very foundational piece for competitiveness of, of the industry and of the nation. And I'm very glad uh, that we're moving in this direction.
1: Finally, assistant editor Taryn Ingmark explores the coastlines on the northern Yucatan Peninsula, where UK-based company CECEL has been implementing artificial coral reefs to help stop and even reverse coastal erosion. Off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula lies the Mesoamerican Reef, which, like all coral reefs, is one of the most biologically diverse ecosystems on the planet. But rising temperatures across the globe are affecting marine life just as much as terrestrial life. As seas get warmer, ocean acidification increases, and oxygen levels in the waters drop. Coral reefs like the Mesoamerican reef are experiencing a fatal health crisis known as White Syndrome, which is a disease that can kill corals in less than 40 days. But the effects of this disease aren't limited to the corals themselves, or the marine life that relies on the reefs, or even the ocean in general. Reefs serve as a barrier between powerful ocean waves and the beaches of coastal cities, Without the reefs to interrupt the constant energy of the tides, waves are crashing onto shore at full force and rapidly eroding the coastlines of popular beaches. But humans have discovered a way to help rebuild those dying coral reefs in an effort to preserve what remains of those beaches. Sea Cell Renewables, a UK based company working around the globe to prevent and even reverse coastal erosion, developed a strategy to accelerate coral growth on submerged steel structures. Using a process called electrolysis. SeaCell has spent many months working on pilot projects in Cancun and Telcec, both of which lie off the northern coast of the Yucatan. The reef projects are designed to mimic the natural growth conditions of coral reefs, which on their own can take hundreds of years to reach maturity. With SeaCell's artificial reef structures, this process can occur in as little as 36 months. Dr. Will Bateman, CEO of SeaCell, said
0: what's what's crucial here is that you can't just put those corals on plain sand they will just sink into the sand and disappear so what we're doing we're providing that sort of almost like a backbone on on which they can be placed
1: the foundation of the artificial reef is a series of 2.2 meter steel half tunnel shaped cage-like structures These structures are electrified by precisely controlled 1.2 to 6 volt electrical currents that run through a small metal anode. The cathode, which in this system is the reef structure itself, increases the pH levels of surrounding water, which causes salts to dissolve against the steel surface of the cage. Oxygen produced by the anode's low-level voltages combine with the soluble effects of the cathode to enable the formation of calcium carbonate and magnesium hydroxide, better known as aragonite and brucite rocks, that attach to and seal the cages, protecting them from corrosion. This entire process is dependent on precision voltage control between the remotely managed anodes and cathodes. In a single month, a three to five millimeter layer of rock can form over the structure. If insufficient voltage is applied, the rock formations can become spongy and unsuitable for the hatchery-grown corals. And, well, you can probably imagine what too much electricity would do in that environment. But, even if the rock successfully bonds to the steel cage so that divers can place local coral polyps by hand, the work isn't done. Sea cells electrolysis process has to continue for the attached corals to grow at the three to five times accelerated rate needed to form mature reefs in three years.
0: The last thing we want to be doing is continuing to grow rock when that process is happening, because all we will do is we end up entombing um, the poor little poly- coral polyps.
1: SeaCells team has had to learn to interpret environmental conditions in the water to determine when a reduction or even a complete cease of power input is warranted to slow the expansion of rock and maximize coral growth. Power for the C-Cell electrolysis process is generated by multiple sources. Some of it is drawn from conveniently renewable resources courtesy of C-Cell's own wave energy converter, which powers an electricity-producing hydraulic system with a paddle. Depending on wave conditions, this system can produce a range of voltage levels between 35 and 70 volts, which is then converted, controlled, and monitored by the electrolysis system itself. Bigger pilots like the one in Telcek garner supplemental power from solar energy. With only a couple hundred watts available, smaller pilots like the ones in Cancun can't harvest enough renewable energy, so they source their power from other means. But sources aside, the power gathered has to be transmitted to electrolysis systems at the pilot reef sites. This is achieved through a power delivery network consisting of front-end conversion regulation stage and a downstream point-of-load regulation stage that delivers power to the electrolysis system over a cable. But, like we said earlier, the amount of power delivered to the system has to be very finely controlled. To maintain the peak current of 10 amps and 50 watts of power required for each length of reef, c leveraged Vicor's factorized power architecture that integrates a pre-regulation module, or PRM, buck-boost voltage regulator, and a voltage transformation module, or VTM, current multiplier with fast transient response. The PRM inputs unregulated voltage and outputs regulated voltage, which is used to drive the VTM. Philip Simpson, a field application engineer at Vicor, said.
4: So VTM is a voltage transformer module or uh, uh, or, or alternatively a current multiplier. So a VTM acts, though it's effectively a DC-DC converter, it acts as sort of an ideal transformer. Uh, they're a dc to dc transformer uh, conceptually uh, with what we call a k factor which is equivalent to a turns ratio in a a transformer type application so the, the 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 combination of the prm and vtm give you the ability to take reasonably high voltage dc and convert it to quite low voltage dc at relatively high current but in a very efficient way. Uh, I think the combination of PRM and VTM that SeaCell uh, are using gives efficiencies well over the 90 percent.
1: In Cancun, 50 such control units are currently deployed along 120 meters of reef. And so far, the results are pretty encouraging, with wave attenuation at the test sites projected to improve to 30 percent in the next year. For context, while global wave energy has increased by 0.41% annually as a result of global warming, just a 5-8% reduction in wave energy would restore the nearshore wave climate to levels from almost two decades ago. The shape and porous structure of Cells artificial coral reefs work to stop larger waves from crashing onto the shore, but allow smaller waves that deposit sand on the beaches to pass through and rebuild what's been lost. There are currently plans to extend the artificial reefs by another one kilometer along the Yucatan coast. But, just as coastal erosion is not a phenomenon unique to one geographical area, CECIL's goals are not confined just to Mexican coasts. The company has been working on further artificial reef structures in places like Israel, the Maldives, and elsewhere, all to stop and hopefully reverse erosion taking place across more than half of the Earth's coastlines. Future goals for SeaCell include a potential partnership with Cornell University to implement acoustics on the reef structures that would mimic the sounds of living, thriving reefs to help attract marine life to the project sites. To learn more, you can visit SeaCell Renewables at www.seacell.co.uk. Further resources are available on the embedded computing design website under success story: How man-made coral reefs are stopping coastal erosion. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website embeddedcomputing.com.